Hello everybody, this is Ray Dagham from STEP and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations where I interview successful startup founders in or from emerging markets. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com and let's get started. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, if you're tuning in through uh, Step Anywhere or if you're listening to this uh, podcast later on uh, on one of your favorite podcast channels, uh, this is, I believe, is the eighth episode of Mete Conversations. And uh, I think I have my ninth guest. And uh, the reason why it's not because I happen to have uh, two guests on one of my uh, previous episodes. Uh, and today's guest is uh, no other than Helen Chen. And there are so many things that are unique about Helen. That's why uh, I invited her to come onto the show. And first and foremost is that she's a, her company is a woman-led uh, company. She's a, a female co-founder or founder, right? Not co-founder. Are you co-founder or founder? We have co-founders. Yes, co-founder. Okay. I think they're male co-founders. So as a female-led uh, company and uh, what the other thing that's really unique about Helen is that uh, opposite to everyone else she actually moved from Silicon Valley uh, to Dubai instead of from Dubai to Silicon Valley to start uh, her company so Helen uh, welcome on the show how are you today good thank you for having me Ray yeah thanks for for joining us so uh, first to start with uh, if you can talk about the two things that I just mentioned uh, would be great to know more about your story and your journey. Uh, when did you move to Dubai? Why did you move from Silicon Valley when you're in the middle of, uh, you know, the, 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 the major tech hub of the world uh, where you could have started Nomad over there? Why did you come to Dubai to start it here? And uh, I believe also you were an investor uh, before. Uh, so you're an investor turned uh, co-founder, entrepreneur. Uh, so that's the third unique thing about you. Uh, so walk us through your, your journey. Absolutely. So thanks everyone for tuning in to another Mate conversation. Um, I'm Helen. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nomad Homes. Nomad Homes is empowering buyers and renters to confidently find their best home. A little bit about myself, which Ray has already mentioned. Um, you know, I was an investor by training. I went to Wharton undergrad. Um, I, I started my career at Blackstone and Goldman Sachs doing investments for them. I also spent some time in China at the Sovereign Wealth Fund before I realized that I didn't want to be an investor for life. So I was like, okay, cool. Good time for me to go to business school. Lucky enough to get into Stanford. Um, and, you know, there I started pursuing my passion, which has always been in real estate. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is always at the intersection of whatever you're doing, plus whatever, um, you know, technology is in that field. So I started, you know, spending my time looking into property technology or prop tech companies in the U.S. internationally. Um, and I found that, you know, buyers and renters across Europe and the Middle East have a very difficult time finding their their best home and you know finding your home is the most important thing um, both personally and financially especially during COVID because we spend so much time at home um, so I actually fell in love with the problem and the customers and I wanted to fix this problem for them um, so much so that I actually dropped out of Stanford after my first year there's fun fact number four I'm a Stanford dropout um, and started Nomad so you know since starting Nomad with my co-founders, Dan and Damien, we're live in Dubai and Paris. 
Um, we've been operational in Dubai since June. Um, and, you know, I think the most important thing for us is we want to help our customers find their best home. And Paris is your second city that you very recently launched. Uh, and I think you're going there soon as well, right? We will get to... Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to the growth of that as well in a bit. <laughs> Great. Looking forward to it. So uh, to talk about, so the first part I want to delve, so the three, the things we're going to talk about today is, is you know, want to learn more about the product that you've built. How do you go about building the product? The property market uh, within uh, Dubai and the region is quite competitive as well. Uh, so when you first started building your product, uh, how do you go about deciding, you know, what pain points are you solving? Uh, what are some of the issues that customers are facing? Um, and specifically within within Dubai as well. I mean, personally, I've uh, you know moved about two times or three times, uh, relocated houses in Dubai, and yes, the the process and you know trying to find a, a house is is not very pleasant. Uh, whether it's uh, finding uh, the place or when you're kind of going on and trying to pick different places, you end up with all these different links on your WhatsApp or on your email or whatever. With, many different links and then you have to speak to an agent and uh, kind of like not everyone is experienced with what to and, and know what to expect within that. So what are these pain points? How do you do it differently at Nomad and how is your product kind of different than uh, you know, if I want to go on uh, Property Finder or Debizzle or Bayut or some of the other uh, property options that I can go to. So what's, what's the difference first between the products and how did you go about, you know, initially conceptualizing the product and, and going from, uh, you know, not having a product to having a product? I think my internet was a little choppy, but I got the question. Um, so, you know, how we think about product development is we're very focused on who our customer is. And for us, our customer is the buyer and the renter. They are the one who's paying the money. Um, and, you know, normally that's a good rule of thumb. Person who pays the money is the customer. And so we only work with buyers and renters. And when we decided what to focus on, you know, for us, a lot of what we're doing is just talking to customers, talking to people like yourselves who have gone through this, gone through the journey and letting them speak about, you know, what's most painful to that. So when we, you know, there's a couple meet with our customers, a couple pieces that really um, you know, search is painful for people because there's fake listings, there's duplicate listings, um, customers get bait and switched, which means you call and you say, you know, I want to see this, but it's no longer available. Right. Um, so for a customer, that's incredibly frustrating. And then, Ray, you mentioned another great point that said, you know, after you call everybody, you're working with 15 different real estate agents. Right. Yeah. And who you're dealing with for what. And then the final piece is really, you know, no one's really on your side. Um, if you think about um, who's in the market today, most of them consider 
the seller or the landlord their customer, whereas we're actually flipped. So what we're doing differently is, you know, one, we're buyer and renter focused only. That is our client. That's who we're always working with. And all the way from beginning to end, you are our primary focus. The second piece is you can work with us from beginning to end. That means we help you through the search. We schedule the viewings for you. We suggest properties for you. We negotiate contracts for you. We even help you with your move-in. Simultaneously, you have access to all of the market through us. Um, so we can get any property that you want. Um, and I think those are the big differences between working with us and working you know, the traditional way. And I would say, you know, our customers are really enjoying it. So we have only five-star Google reviews, uh, which is really important because if we're not building a product that our customers love, then we're not in the right business. So you're working on the buyers, with the buyer and the renter, uh, not, not the seller. So does that mean, do you compete with the, with the other, uh, like with the real estate agents or do you work with them in some way? Can you explain we that? Actually work with them. Yeah. I think for us, our mentality is that the pie is big enough for everybody to play in. So how can we collaborate with the other parties in the room? Um, so our decision was to actually work with the existing real estate agents in the market and how it works at Nomad is, you know, we represent buyers and renters. The real estate agents who are actually our partners represent the sellers and the landlords. And we work together to make sure that the that the renter finds the perfect home um, and the buyer finds their perfect home. And that's that's how we collaborate and work together. Okay, so here it's what's interesting is that the, you as the you know representing the buyer and the renter, you're incentivized to make it you know work best for the buyer and the renter, which is great for the for for if you are the buyer and the renter. So, but the other you know thing I could think of is are we adding are you adding a layer to that kind of relationship as well? As well? Uh, also, what about like the unit economics uh, that come with it? Uh, do you charge more than if I were to just deal with the same agent that the uh, you know seller is dealing with? Uh, so, like usually, I think it's like five percent I would pay as a as a as a someone who's renting uh, a house, let's say. So, what, is that different? Like, what would it cost for a customer? So, is the customer paying more to get a better service, or uh, is there something else that's that's in here? Yeah, so in Dubai, the customer pays the exact same cost. So working with us, whether you're buying or renting, it's the exact same as working with a traditional real estate agent, but you get all of these concierge benefits and you have someone who always has your back. Um, so it's the exact same cost as going through the traditional way. Okay, when you say concierge like benefits, what what, what is that like? Is that uh, like, what's your journey? What's the customer journey from, uh, let's say I want to move houses like in a, in a month. So when when should I contact Nomad? Uh, what is the first thing that I would do? And then like what happens afterwards? Yeah. So the first thing you would do is you can come onto our website, nomadhomes.co. On there, you will be qualified automatically to understand your preferences. And this means when do you want to move? Where do you want to move? How much do you want to spend? Anything else that you want us to know? Um, and then after that, you know, within um, our internal systems and our tech, we actually start suggesting you properties, suggesting you properties based on what you've told us that we think you might like. So instead of scrolling through thousands of listings and, you know, they may be fake, they may be duplicate, um, we actually um, use our technology to find a match for you. 
And then at that point, you are on Nomad. Um, you have a user dashboard, which keeps track of all of the properties that you like, all of them that you dislike. You can select, you know, schedule a viewing for me. And Nomad will schedule the viewing for you based on your availability. Um, so you don't have to work with 15 different people to do that. We handle that all for you. And all the links as well. <laughs> I <laughs> hate, you know, you have like a sheet or your WhatsApp is full with all these different links and then you forget yeah. which one is what. So that's why we developed user dashboard. That was a common pain point that everyone was saying. Everyone said, oh, I have this Google sheet. I share it with my partner, with my family, or I have this Excel. Like, can you do something about this? It's like, yeah, we can do something about that. Let's make it into a product feature. Um, so then, you know, after that, then we still do believe that, especially when you're buying a home and even when you're renting, having that personal touch is very important. So you are then assigned a dedicated nomad advisor who is dedicated to you specifically throughout your entire journey. They go on the viewings with you. They gather the feedback. If you need a new round of suggestions, you get more suggestions in your user dash and then they're with you every step of the way, all the way through contract negotiations. And you know, for us, our ultimate goal is to make our customers happy. So we're actually pushing down the price on your behalf. We actually negotiate down the price, um, which I think is different from what's in the market today. Um, and again, it all comes back to alignment of interest for us. Um, you know, if if one person is in between, like who are they working for? Um, and that's why we believe that similar to if you think about like an M&A deal for a bank, they always have a buy side bank and a sell side bank. And we think that's the same for this type of transaction. Is that, I think you worked in banking, right? Was that something that you kind of like linked to it? Uh, <laughs> was that an inspiration like from another use case? It is. So I would say we have a lot of inspiration. One is, you know, buying a home is a complex transaction. Um, and so is an M&A deal. So I worked at Goldman and it's very clear when you're completing a deal, you have buy side representation, you have sell side representation. Because if you fundamentally think about it, they want different things. If the buyer has a plus, then the seller just got a minus, right? And so each side deserves and needs their own representation. And, you know, having buyer and seller representation also is something that exists in other places around the world. So for example, in the US, um, it is mandated by the Realtors Association that buyers and sellers have separate representation. And if you want that person to be the same person, you have to sign a waiver. Um, again, this is because of the alignment of interests and actually in China, uh, which is where we take other pieces of inspiration, that's the same thing as well. Um, so people are, are coming, coming to understand that you know, having someone on your side makes it an easier process and is, is more aligned with you. Yeah, that makes sense because at some point in some transactions, you can get to a point where it's there's an incentive for the agent to, you know, raise the price or whatever in order to make more, more commission or more money in some way. It depends on the price and what commission they're getting. Uh, you spoke about something that's very interesting. So you spoke about um, how like I can answer as a user, I can answer a few questions and then you, you know, you kind of like personalize or give me options on different houses. Typically the way, you know, I've done it on other, uh, kind of platforms is it's, it's, you know, the price range, the, 
square footage. It's the obvious stuff. Is there anything that usually, so to tell you what I'm trying to get here, usually I'm looking for a certain style as well, but I find it difficult to find that style unless I know the building, like I know the specific building and how they look from the inside. So I know where to search, but that's not often the case. So is there a way that you actually kind of like customize so that you pull out, you understand the users uh, or the, the buyers kind of like style and their preferences and show them these things? Absolutely. So if you think about finding your home, um, you're not only thinking about how big is it, um, how much money am I going to spend or how many bedrooms? That's kind of table stakes, right? When you actually decide on the home that you want to live in, oftentimes it's, is it white? Does it get a lot of natural sunlight? Does it have a balcony? Um, is it floor to ceiling windows? You know, which direction is it facing? Does it have a view? So those things are really difficult to actually filter for, right? Um, and oftentimes those filters are not available, especially if you think about, I want hardwood floors or I want white kitchen cabinets or a gas stove. Those are requirements that oftentimes our customers ask us for. And so what we've done is, you know, we are a tech company at heart. And so at Nomad, we have these buildings tagged basically. So we know that one, you know, for example, uh, I'll take Index, for example. Index has white interiors. It's modern and a lot of people like that. Um, and so when a customer comes to us and they say these things, we register it, we put it into our system and then through the suggestions, it gets suggested back out that you will probably like Index. But we've taken it one step further as well. Um, you know, we know our customers' behaviors. So the other pieces say you're an index tower in Dubai, you probably will like CityWalk as well. Um, so even if you didn't know about CityWalk, uh, we will suggest it to you because we know that other user history, that has been the trend. Um, so we're learning um, from the trends of our users to better service our future customers. Is that human powered or is it like AI powered in some way in terms of the recommendation engine that you have? It's both. So if it's something that we know well, it can be auto suggested. If it's something that, you know, we haven't had as many customers come through that way, then um, someone will actually check the suggestions and make sure that it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of usages is like combining human and AI is when it work, currently works best. Uh, kind of like one on its own doesn't do the, uh, you know, the magic that it does when you combine the two together. So how did your, your product evolve? I'm, I'm interested to know about like from when you started and launched or, or pre-launch, uh, what was the first thing that you felt that, that was a, like a must-have in your product uh, to launch with? And what's the process as well? So what, what was your methodology to kind of decide um, what are the main things, their features or uh, requirements, especially that you're particularly unique, at least in this market, there isn't other players that are offering exactly the same thing you're doing. I'm not sure if there are. Um, do you, did you base that on, you know, certain things that you had in mind or uh, are there other references? I mean, many, many uh, startups within this region, you know, kind of always have a, uh, you know, an idol or another company in the U.S. that's, you know, successful in that space. And they kind of try to, you know, inspire or follow that path that the other company followed. Uh, so what, what was your kind of approach to that 
on a product specifically level. Yeah. So if you go back into the Nomad archives, when we first launched, uh, you know, a lot of it was just how can we display homes for our customers to view? This is like the fundamental piece. And then the second piece is how can we know when a customer wants to move to the next stage? So, you know, I think for us, we take a very, um, you know, lean approach to product and push product out as quickly as possible so we can get feedback and iterate very, very quickly. And I think that's something that Dan, um, who leads our product and our tech, does a great job with because we can think all we want in our heads, like how something should work. But until we push it out and have real customers interacting with it, we don't know. Right. Um, So that's, I would say, the first piece that we really hold near and dear to our hearts is like listen to the customer yeah, because not to build be, in isolation yeah because it can be like the coolest thing in our heads but if the customer doesn't like it or doesn't know how to use it like it's garbage right um so that's the first piece that i would say is like you know this customer qualification and this suggestions piece that really came out after you know the product was out in 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 our customers hands we were listening to them we have feedback sessions with our customers saying what can we do better and this is i think i lost you helen all right i think we lost helen here for a bit so i'll wait for her to join back in right I think I have you back. I'm just going to wait for the team to put, all right, you're, you're, we're back on, uh, lost you there for a bit. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no. are we, where did I cut off? Uh, so I think you're talking like about like the product kind of listening to, to customers and not building in isolation and then taking that feedback in. And then, uh, I think that's where kind of things cut off. Okay. Um, so the feedback and then customers really just like, you have to talk to your customers. That's why to this day, all of our senior team members, every single person on our team still works with customers. We still handle customers. We still go on viewings with them because we really need to understand firsthand what's going well and what we can do better. Right. Um, so that's really important to us. And when, so when you started with the. When you launched, uh, did you launch with a, a more like a human uh, kind of uh, driven approach? So what I mean by that is, did you build like your dashboard and all your tech was ready or because in, in your model, you could have probably started. I don't know if that's what you did uh, with just basically having people, uh, you know, apply that they want to move. And then it's more of a uh, assign an agent uh, from your side or the concierge and then they can probably finish the, the transaction without much tech, right? So, because sometimes for founders and a lot of, you know, uh, the audience for this podcast are uh, founders, uh, it's kind of, you, you know, if you're bootstrapping or you're starting is how far do you go with the tech until you approve a product market fit? So that for you, that was like the customer feedback. And when you were building, you're getting that customer feedback and making sure there was product market fits. So what kind of balance did you do? How much of the product was built when you launched and started testing this product market fit? And what takeaways like did you learn from that? Did you do anything that you wish you would have done differently in terms of timing specifically? Yeah, you know, 
For us, even though we move quickly, we always think we can move faster. Like if we do retrospectives, we're always saying like, oh, we could have done, we could have like hacked that together, tested that faster. And, you know, I'll give you some inspiration on this one. Um, so one of the co-founders of DoorDash is one of our angel investors. And when they went public, I received a screenshot of an email of the first product iteration of DoorDash. It was a Google form, literally. <laughs> Google form, tell me what you want to order, where do you want it from, what's your address, what's your number, email. That was DoorDash 1.0. So, you know, if you think about that, and, you know, I've, I've, I haven't looked recently at how big DoorDash is, you know, tens of billions of dollars, right? Um, you know, I think you can always do things faster, hackier, um, and you can test things much faster without actually building out all of the tech. So for us, you know, I'll tell you version one of our user dashboard was actually WhatsApp. Uh, we built a Google spreadsheet that would format links of properties and extract certain amounts of information so that it looked nice. And then it moved to a PDF. Um, and then, you know, it turned into a notion page and it was, they're very, like, there were variants of how this came to be before it actually turned into a product. Right. And that's something that I think, um, all of us can be better about is how do we test more quickly, um, without actually building the product. Um, it's, it's, and I think yeah. when, when there, there's nothing that is too hacky, you can do a lot with Google sheets. Um, and I think that that reminder from DoorDash is always sticking with us. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it's, it's the case for a lot of uh, businesses that are here in the region. Uh, I mean, timing and product market fit is, is probably extremely important um, to figure out as early as possible, because the last thing you want to do is build, 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 and then you know, you spend all the, you know, your resources, your money, your time. And then once you go to market, you realize there's no market or the timing is wrong or something is, is, is wrong. Uh, so when, when was that kind of like, when was the realization for you or the turning point that you felt that, okay, like this is, this works, you know, let's, let's go all out. Let's build the, the product. When was that? Like how many months in from when you guys uh, came up with the idea and started working on it till actually like went full full on on the tech um i would say probably like three months in um we like tried to help someone rent their house basically that's that's what we did um and i think at that point you know of course we're simultaneously developing tech as well because you probably need some sort of landing page for nomad when people come to visit you you need to understand like you know we're a real company um, but I think, you know, that was when we had our first call it like transaction, um, and the customer liked it. So then after that, you know, we had our like official launch in June, uh, post COVID. And then, you know, after that, it kind of snowballed. And I think where we get comfort is that when we talk to our customers, they say Nomad has changed the way that I view buying and renting. And that to a founder's ears is like the best thing you can ever hear, right? Um, I recommend you to my friends. I want to use you again. Um, there's nothing else that we can ask for. And at that point, then we start asking, you know, okay, so what did we do specifically that you liked? What can we do better? 
right? And that's where that feedback loop comes into play. How do you collect feedback, by the way? Because feedback is, you know, everyone thinks, okay, you have to listen to customers, you have to collect feedback. But many times, customers will not tell you what you like, what you should hear. They maybe tell you what you know something else uh, through surveys or through different ways that you do it. So how, what, what was your approach? I mean, there's also like heat maps and all sorts of things that you can, you know, track customer behavior and, um, and try to figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't. Um, what's your approach on that? Do you send surveys? Is, do you just like talk to the customers and try from the conversation to figure out, you know, uh, what are their actual like kind of feedback and how do you put that back in, into the product? That's a great question. So we do it in multiple ways. Um, we send out surveys. Um, we do formal customer interviews, like post 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 transaction, basically. And then my favorite, to be honest, is like, go do it yourself. Um, do it yourself and listen to the customer. So that's why, you know, to this day, I still handle customers. You know, I review their suggestions. The yeah, absolutely. Like. How are you supposed to make strategic decisions when you don't know what's going on with your customers? Mm -hmm. um, so that's super important to us. Just like, you know, the Kareem founders used to drive cars as captains too, right? So they know. Um, not only do you understand what your customers' pain points are, you understand what your team is going through as well. Because not yeah, only are... Not only is our product, you know, external facing, um, the Nomad team also has internal tools, right? So. Overall, if you don't do it, it's very difficult for you to understand what's going on. Um, so those are the different ways that we look for feedback. This is uh, what you just mentioned is very underrated. That's it's uh, so important for founders to actually, you know, have close contact, and that becomes more of a challenge as the company like grows and you start like raising more rounds and having a bigger team. Uh, that kind of like distancing from customers. It's just very natural to happen unless, you know, founders actually put effort into, you know, making sure that they're still directly speaking to customers and not just listening to what their their team is telling them. Because those two things might many times be different, might not be exactly the same. Uh, what about your pricing? So you mentioned that in Dubai, you, you your price is uh, identical to uh, uh, if the customer were to go a different route. Uh, which is, you know, the more kind of like obvious route. Uh, how did you decide about that? What was your, again, just like surveys or get to get feedback or, because uh, pricing is, is something extremely important for every every startup, like when, and it's, it's an on, uh, like non-stop uh, process or an ongoing process that you continue to go through. Uh, but I'm curious to learn about uh, how you guys came up with the pricing. And is it different in Paris? Because you mentioned in Dubai, so. Uh, yeah. So pricing, you can do a lot of customer interviews to test willingness to pay. Um, and I forget who wrote about it, but there's some really good articles out there about how to test willingness to pay um, for your product. And so, you know, for us, we talked to a lot of people and said, you know, would you be willing to pay for this product? How much? How much would you pay? And we found that you know, sometimes you can ask in percentages, sometimes you ask in dollars, like, would you be willing to pay $500 or a thousand or 2000 or something like that? Um, and so for us, you know, Dubai is unique in that the buyer and the renter actually pay for the real estate agency commissions. 
Um, so we felt that if we were to increase something that the buyer is already paying for, that might be a little bit challenging, right? Um, but you know, in Paris, actually, the buyer doesn't pay for anything. Um, so there, we actually charge the buyer for the services because we're adding incremental services and improving the customer experience for them. And so pricing is pretty, I would say, unique to each launch market that you're in. Um, but I would say it's also an art too. Like, uh, you, I would say in more high frequency transactions, you have more ability to test pricing. But when something is as chunky as buying a home or renting a home, you don't get as many data points as, you know, if you're, mm -hmm. if you're putting the pricing around, let's say yeah. when you're selling, you know, a cup or something like that. Yeah, jump into into uh, market expansion and uh, speaking of, of you know Paris and you're expanding now uh, and growth in general. So when you're doing the one like on the pricing topic, are you worried that you know you're entering a market that buyers typically don't pay for this? Uh, what uh, indicators uh, made you convinced that you know people because what you're asking for essentially is that asking someone who usually doesn't pay for anything to come and actually pay for a service on top of what they usually do so did that come from like a real pain point that you you saw with, with customers in Paris and um, how long would you would you kind of like what's your approach to figure out again about timing and product market fit in Paris that is it going to work or not? Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, I guess the last piece that I didn't mention in pricing is you have to benchmark against services that are already in the market. So, you know, in Paris, there are some old school, you know, house hunting agencies that do do this and they charge. They charge anywhere from two to five percent. And so as we're benchmarking, you know, what's the willingness to pay? of a buyer there, we actually had good benchmarks of saying like, okay, people are willing to pay up to 5%. So let's start, you know, let's start somewhere in the middle and then let's move our pricing around to see what people are willing to do, right? And then the other piece I would say is like, your initial pricing to get customers in the door is probably going to be different from your long-term pricing, right? Um, until you have the brand awareness and the reputation that you are really adding value to the customer and improving the customer experience. I think, you know, in the beginning, you kind of just need to get customers in the door, right? Um, yeah. You know, obviously it shouldn't be, I mean, it could be free actually, um, but that's, that's a judgment call for each company. Um, and I think there is a big difference between, you know, your initial pricing and your steady state pricing. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, what is your growth uh, kind of like approach other than, you know, within markets? So market expansion is obviously one as you're entering a new market, but within each market, what has worked for you in terms of growth and, and marketing? Yeah, so fundamentally, you need to have a product and an experience that your customers love. Because no matter how much money you put into, you know, marketing um, or Google or Facebook or whatever, if you don't have something that customers don't love, it's very difficult to push that. Um, so that's number one for us is that every time we do something, we need to make sure that our customers like what we're doing. Um, and then the second piece is, you know, you need to find your, your channels, 
right? Not every channel works for everybody. And so there's a really great article out there um, called The Three Lane Highway. Um, I think it's by Lenny Rachatsky. Um, so X, you know, Airbnb. And it's great. So this three lane highway article is really, really good. Basically, in summary, it says if you are a consumer facing business, there's basically three ways for you to grow your uh, to grow your business, your organic, paid, virality. Uh, beyond that, everything is some sort of variant of that. And so pick your lane and go with it. And so the difficult part of that is you need to verify that one of those lanes is your best lane. Um, and that's quite challenging. But I think, you know, in, in, in I would say, consumer-facing businesses, there aren't too many variants about how to get customers in the door. Um, but you do need to figure out what's best for you. Yeah, and in... in um... I mean, yeah, there's different ways. It's always interesting to like, okay, trying to figure out what's, you know, a hack or a way to kind of like have this like explosive growth. And uh, speaking of Lenny and like Airbnb specifically, uh, one of their ways was uh, the listing on Craigslist uh, and kind of like using that as a hack to, 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 to grow. Uh, have you figured out your own kind of like way? Is there something that you did that, created like higher growth than you've seen using other channels yeah so our best channel is referrals uh like when customers refer other customers um that's our best channel actually so a couple reasons why you know there is a loop there customer likes what you do they refer their friends and for you know finding a home it makes sense because if you're looking to move or looking to buy or to rent, you're probably talking to your friends about it, right? And if someone says, hey, I recommend you to use Nomad, you're probably like, okay, let me go check that out. And you place trust in what they recommended to you, right? Um, and so this for us is one of our best channels. Um, and the other piece is, you know, it's a great, it's very efficient from a customer acquisition perspective, um, because the intent to transact with us and to work with us is very, very high. Um, so this is this virality loop that Lenny was talking about in this article. And for Nomad, it works quite well. Yeah, so with the referrals, I mean, referrals are great, especially when you have a really good product that people love. and uh, They usually just want to tell their friends about it. Uh, so have you built a system for that? and? I'm also like thinking, was that something that worked for you from the beginning when you didn't really have an initial customer base to refer or what was like the first, you know, your first 50 customers or 100 customers, where did these come from uh, in order for those 100 to get you the, the other customers to refer? Yeah. Um, LinkedIn is also a great channel. So when you have no cut, like your first customers are probably yourself or your friends. This is just the easiest way to acquire, like to get someone to test you out, right? And I don't think that we, there's no shame in this, right? You gotta do whatever it takes to get your business off the ground. And so honestly, first customers through the door, we were WhatsApping people, we were LinkedIn messaging people saying, hey, do you wanna try Nomad? Like we'll make your, we'll make your home experience so much easier, you know? Um, and that's how it started, really. And then more people hear about you. 
you know, once you have a friend, they have more friends and your network just grows exponentially yeah. after that. How important is content for you? Um, I think a lot of the players within the space, uh, because it's all based on, you know, having the listings there and if someone is searching, you know, because usually you need to know that someone is searching for a home as well, right? It's not something that, um, it's not a product that consumers consume on a daily basis or a monthly. This probably happens once a year, two years or a few years. So how are you building content around that so that you attract customers or is it more or are you still like thinking that referrals will like remain your main yeah. channel? Over, over the long run, you know, organic positioning on Google is very, very important. But I think the biggest thing on SEO optimization is that it can't happen overnight. Um, it takes a lot of time to build it. So we are building it. Um, and, you know, the immediate impact of optimizing for content and for search takes much longer. Um, and for us, you know, referrals is our like number one. And then after that, we have multiple channels underneath that. Yeah, what are some of the other ways other than referrals? Is there uh, is there anything that you do? Uh, is partnerships one of them? Partnerships is one of them. We found that if you can hook into, you know, an HR team um, to recommend you when an employee first joins their company, that's a great way. It's another form of referral, right? Um, but it's on a B2B level. Um, so that's actually one of the ways that we also gen we also find our customers is actually through B2B partnerships. And through referrals, is there like an incentive for me to refer someone? Do I get something out of it if I refer like a friend to, to use Nomad? Would you like a free cleaning, Ray? Do you have any friends who are looking to move? Always good to get a free cleaning. Anything free is not. <laughs> there you go. It's worth it. Um, we found that, you know, giving something is important, but we've actually found that giving your friend a great customer experience is actually more important than you getting something. And so, you know, we give free cleanings because it's fun and it's relevant, right? Everybody wants a clean house. Um, but we found that actually the act of gifting a great customer experience is usually gratification enough for our customers. Obviously, we have incentives to do this as well. Um, but first and foremost, you had to have a great customer experience and trust the experience enough to recommend Nomad to one of your friends because you don't want to be that friend who said, you know, try this and it turns out really poor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if you like, usually people who you know, want to have a good experience with a product, you want to tell your friends about it, you want to share it. Uh, it's just a normal kind of uh, behavior. On expanding into new markets, what's your uh, approach to that? Uh, do you like how, how did you assess and come to the conclusion that Paris was going to be your second market? Do you look at market size? Do you look at uh, other factors that makes you decide? Because the world is a big place and you uh, also can operate in many different cities around the world, uh, especially because, you know, originally as well, you're not just from the region or grew up only in this region. You're, uh, you have, you know, kind of, you know, different to the US or China or different places around the world. Um, so how do you go from the global market? How do you pick your cities? So for us, we look at it on two spectrums. 
The first is really how big is the market that we're entering and is it worth our time to launch that city? Um, so that means, you know, how big is it? How big, how many homes are being sold per year? Um, like things like this, right? For different businesses, it's different metrics, but for us, it's, you know, how many homes are being sold per year? At what price? That's the fundamental question that we're looking to answer. And then the second piece is, you know, is our team the best team to solve that problem in that market? You know, I think Damien, um, my co-founder and our COO, uh, was number six on that Uber Paris team, um, and he was running Uber Eats across the Gulf. So he has that operational expertise um, to launch new markets, and especially the Parisian market, right? Um, so those are two factors that we really look at is, you know, one, is it big enough? And two, are we the right people to do it? Yeah, I know so many startups that made, this is one of the areas that you make the most mistakes in. Uh, and kind of like underestimate in some ways, uh, including markets that seem to be similar on the outside, like for example, even expanding from the UAE to another market in the region, which is okay, another Arab country, but it turns out to be very different. Um, and some of them now, you know, like some of the bigger players, even like startups that are fundraised more, you know, are bringing in consultants and doing like these strategy, kind of like market assessments and slides and so on. Is that something that you think is important or is it more about uh, how much of it is science and how much of it is like more like gut and, and, and feeling as well? Uh, yeah, there is, I mean, there is science to it, right? The, the numerical of how big is this market, that's science. It, are we the best team to do it? That's a lot of qualitative, you know, that's a qualitative assessment. Right. Yeah, um, so, you know, there's obviously competitive landscape analysis, like you can do the analysis on that. But at the end of the day, it is, it is up to the leadership team and up to the people who are launching that market to say, yes, I'm going to do it. And, you know, we're going to do it the best. So there is a leap of faith that you have to take when you launch a new market. And once you take that leap of faith, you know, everyone on the Nomad team is committed to making it work. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is an art and, and a science for sure. What do you what do you start with first? So in terms of your approach, do you start first with that, you know, the qualitative part of, um, okay, what cities do we know best as a team? And then you kind of like see if they actually have a, if the science works or do you go more the other way around? Like you try to see, what cities make the most sense in terms of market size, and then you kind of like check the, the, the other items off if you actually understand it or not. I think they're done in conjunction with each other. Um, because so many of our team, you know, they're ex-Uber, they've launched a lot of markets, oftentimes they'll say, oh, you know, this market is really great to launch. Every single time we launch there, whether it's a new product, you know, whether it's rides, food, bikes, anything like that, we've had great success. Um, so sometimes there are intangible factors in a city, um, whether that's, you know, the people like to adopt new things, whether that's the regulators are very flexible um, or anything like that. Sometimes you have experience that dictates say, hey, check out this city, right? Is that a good city for us? And then you go and check the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, um, there is a certain fixed cost to launching a new city. So if it's not big enough, 
It's like not yeah. as exciting, I would say. What's another like specific question to that? What's like your approach when it comes to those who the, 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 the team or the people who would lead the city? Do you prefer kind of like utilizing someone already in the company uh, who's been with the, in the company for a while to launch a new city or go hire a new resource? I don't know who lived in that city or worked in that city and knows it best, uh, but then also they've never worked at Nomad. So uh, what's what has worked more from your just experience in general and what is your preferred approach? For us, the person who's launching that city needs to be the most capable, the most qualified and the most dedicated to helping Nomad succeed in that market. So. If you are someone at Nomad and you raise your hand and you say, I want to do it, that's great. If we don't yeah. have that person and someone else outside of the company is better, then we need to go get that person. Um, so I don't think we're dogmatic either way, um, you know, at Nomad and how we make these decisions. But, you know, having the, the best person to go do it is incredibly important. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, and, and one of the things I want to touch about uh, uh, or, or, or speak about with you is fundraising. Uh, you fundraise, as, uh, again, go back to your story. You've, you've moved from Silicon Valley to Dubai and you decided to bring that money with you in one way or the other, which is good <laughs> for Dubai. <laughs> I mean, I, Ray, I didn't pack it in my suitcase and bring it on the plane with me. <laughs> So what, what made you decide, like, how did that happen in terms of like timeline? Did you move first and then fundraise from people network you, you've known or, uh, and what made you decide to go after which uh, investors? I mean, for many people like that, it doesn't have to be tied to location, but for many it is like, where am I fundraising from? Where are my investors based? Yeah. Um, so for us, the way we think about, so I guess just for people's context. We've raised $4 million in seed funding. Um, we raised it last year and our investors are Comcast Ventures, Partech, um, Abstract, Wonderco, Precursor and Class 5 Global, among other angels as well. Um, so it's a very diverse group of funds and individuals, both from the Valley um, and also globally. Um, so that's, that's our investor base. And when we think about who are our investors and who is best suited for Nomad. The first thing for us is actually, we actually view all of our investors as our partners. They are our capital partners. And so when we talk about partnership, people need to believe and come together on the same vision, right? Do you believe in what we are doing as a company at Nomad and what we are building and the market that we are tackling? and the problem that we're tackling. So that's like fundamental, like vision alignment first, right? Um, and then after that, you know, certain investors are better at certain things. Um, so some, some investors, you know, have really big strength in consumer or some are really good at helping, you know, launching zero to one seed stage companies. Others have really great networks um, in a particular field. So I think when you when we think about constructing our investor base, we like to have a mix of people, right? A mix yep. of investors that support Nomad no matter what we do. Um, so I think that's that's how we think about it. How many of your investors, I think you have a number of angels on there as well. So how many are angels and how many are uh, funds? 
So the majority are funds and the vast majority of the capital is from the funds, from the institutions. What is what is the I mean, other than the capital itself, what uh, uh, things do angels bring to the table that funds don't? Are there is there a particular reason why I didn't ju didn't just invest all from funds? Was it just about you know what was available, or was was there, was there other factors? Yeah, so a lot of our angels bring domain expertise. So we have a lot of prop tech CEOs, like you know the founder of Fly Homes, which is you know Andreessen Horowitz company. Um, you know. CEOs who have done it before, who have faced similar problems, who, you know, we can pick up the phone and call, right? Um, we can pick up the phone and say, hey, we're facing this problem. How do you think about that? Right. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's where we get a lot of value from our angel network is, is really, you know, they probably have some sort of domain expertise um, and, and we want to learn from them. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, lastly, one thing that I touch upon when I started is is uh, you're a female founder uh, and CEO. Uh, does that have any impact on you know way of doing things, especially being in a in a region which is you know starting to become more supportive to women? But uh, in general, what has been your experience with that? Uh, and and also maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about your team. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, for me, I've generally always been the only female in the room. Um, I started in finance, in private equity, in New York City. Like I was the only woman in my analyst class. And then I moved to Silicon Valley, which is also very male dominated. And then to top it all off, I'm in the real estate plus technology industry. So real estate, yeah, also also it's, I'm just adding and adding and adding in terms of like you know, the powerful men that surround me, um, right? So to be honest, because I grew up in, in an environment where I was the only woman in the room, I don't really think too much about it. First and foremost, I am one of the founders and I am a CEO of a company. Um, I don't think, you know, being a woman or being a man should really impact the fact that that first and foremost is my responsibility to the company. Um, so I think that's generally how I approach it. And in terms of, you know, what I feel on a day to day basis, I think, you know, the region and the industry are quite open, right? I don't feel like I'm boxed out because of uh, the gender or my ethnicity or anything like that. So I think, you know, being a female founder and the CEO gives me a great platform um, to support women in technology, women in real estate, um, even women in finance. Um, but fundamentally, I view myself as a founder and a CEO first. I agree. Yeah, and and usually when you want to hire, do you uh, uh, like look for more women, or what's your approach to that? Yeah. So. When we hire, we do have a rule of, for every single role at Nomad, uh, there must be one woman candidate and one male candidate. And we believe that in a world where 50% are women and 50% are men, we should be able to do that, right? Um, but I think dictating, saying, you know, I have to have an all woman team, I think that's actually biased against men, right? Um, I think for us, uh, you know, at Nomad, we are very much a merit meritocracy, 
uh, which means we want the best people supporting this company and to build Nomad for the long term. Yeah, that's an interesting rule. I like that. Um, and what's next for Nomad? On, on a closing note, we're almost reaching the hour. Uh, what is next for Nomad other than Paris? <laughs> um, you know, for us at Nomad, our vision is always to be pan-EMEA, right? And to help people find, you know, the best home for them. And so, you know, obviously growing in the cities that we're in, improving on the customer experience, improving our product to deliver a better customer experience and, you know, new city launches to come. So that's that's what's on the docket. Um, and of course, if you're looking to move, whether that's buying or renting, come visit us at nomadhomes.co. Awesome. That was really great. Thank you very much for for joining. Uh, there's so many things that you know, other founders can learn from. Um, so if people want to learn more about Nomad, we've had the website uh, on this for watching some video, nomadhomes.co, and where can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, shoot me a message and I'll get back to you. Awesome. Helen, thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com 